This is the On Humans podcast with your host, Ilarin Mäkelä. If you are as lucky as I am, you have never lived in a war zone. But we have all been exposed to wars in films, books, news reporting, and we all probably have some naive ideas about what it does to human psyche. Now, if asked what does war do to human mind, most of us would probably say the war traumatizes. We might add that war risks diminishing our humaneness by normalizing violence and demonizing the enemy. And I would certainly have said so, and, and to some extent, of course, still do. But I was recently asked to interview anthropologist Greta Uling, who made me rethink these simple answers. Uling is the author of the book Everyday War, which is based on her studies in Ukraine. Uh, now, it's worth saying that she's been studying Ukraine long before the full-scale invasion started in 2022, focusing mainly on the Donbas region, where the war has really been going on for soon 10 years now. And building on over 150 interviews, she really chronicles with great nuance how war can be traumatizing, often is traumatizing, yes, but can also allow people to find meaning in novel relationships of care, compassion, community. And while these acts of care are often contained within one side alone, they do not always end there. This was a really wonderful conversation, not only because of its larger implications to understanding war and humanity itself, but because of the warmth and humaneness that Uling brings to this ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Like she said during the interview, she wanted to show the inside, the everyday experience behind the destructive pictures we see on news. And I think she succeeds very well using protagonists that are not so much the active soldiers and politicians as much as the civilian in a bombed building, the retired veteran trying to find meaning in life. And in other words, the average person, if there ever was one. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Now, before we start, I do want to remind that researching, interviewing, editing the show takes up a lot of time and resources. Now, if you have just discovered the show or you only come here sporadically, then please sit back and enjoy. But if you are a regular listener, you appreciate the offering here, and you do want to become more involved in supporting the show and making it more financially sustainable, you can now do so. The episode description will have linked to my Patreon account where you can become a monthly donor. I do want to take time also here to acknowledge those who have already answered the call, hopped on board, and become Patreon supporters. If this rate continues, I will soon be able to start covering at least the cost of the podcast, the monthly cost with that income stream, and perhaps go beyond that and thereby be able to allocate more time to the project. So a warm thank you to those who have already done so, and if you haven't, please do consider it. But let's leave the practicalities aside for now. Of course, my most important wish as always is that you enjoy and learn something from this conversation with Greta Uling. Dr. Greta Uling, welcome to On Humans. Thank you for having me. And uh, congratulations on your new book, Everyday War. It's quite a time to write a book about how war influences the lives of everyday people in places such as, in your case, Ukraine. Was the book roughly ready before the full-scale invasion in 2022? Yeah, the book was in the publication process when the full-scale invasion took place. Um, and at that time, Cornell graciously allowed me to write an afterword that incorporated some observations from the full-scale invasion and gave me the 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 generous opportunity to just say a few words about how the full-scale invasion didn't negate what I was talking about, but actually underscored some of my central points in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you mentioned in the book that when the project started, the kind of draft title was PTSD Land. 
PTSD as post-traumatic stress disorder. And what, what, what made you change your mind? Wonderful question. I certainly went to Ukraine thinking I would be writing a book about war and trauma, speaking to victims of the war and recipients of humanitarian aid. And what I found was something quite different because as the title alludes, there's this everyday war going on that refers to the highly conscious and really creative ways that non-combatants were engaging in the war, both through their actions as well as how the war was affecting their relationships. So in the, on the action side, uh, Yuri opened a cafe for the rehabilitation of veterans. Alexandra drops out of her university studies to provision her father with night vision goggles and tactical gloves, knowing full well he's, he's killing their former neighbors and friends, but she's made a decision to prioritize this caring connection that she has with him. Likewise, I mean, there's so many examples and stories about this in the book. Taurus comes out of retirement to collect the remains of fallen soldiers driving on mined roads when he doesn't really have to. Uh, there's a lot of examples of this everyday war. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the idea that came to me when I was reading through was, in a way, that the, the easy way to think about war is that war is cruelty and care is peace. And that, in a way, you say that it's not as simple as that because there's so much care that goes on to to this this phenomenon of everyday war from not just the the the, the civilians who then in some instances and in many instances then really like neighborhood care is increased etc and civilians can find more caring relations when they are under trouble but also that with the soldiers, it's not a kind of thirst for blood and thirst for cruelty that drives, but often some kind of, of an idea of those people that they are fighting for, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's another assumption that I, I questioned as a result of my research, because it would be easy to assume that war destroys people's humanity and yet what I found was the, these ways in which it, it restored people's humanity. Hmm. Hmm. And I think that Pasha is perhaps the best example of that. So Pasha is this man who his home is destroyed in a mortar attack. He flees hundreds of miles with his wife to put down stakes in the outskirts of Kiev. And he's utterly impoverished by this experience of dispossession from his home and his job and everything that was familiar to him. And he begins to rebuild this shack that he's inhabiting with his wife and begins to notice that the neighbors stop by and ask them what they're needed. And Pretty soon, everything from food to spare doors and windows is being dropped off. And so Pasha put it to me so succinctly and guided my thinking so powerfully on this because he talked about how he said, you know, that fear that you could be left without anything. And I said, of course, that's so human. And he said, well, that fear is gone. And so by receiving this care that he didn't 
expect his experience of dispossession relieved rather than aggravating these deep insecurities of, you know, that we might find ourselves without support. You also mentioned Café Patriot earlier. I think that was a, that had, uh, had a lot of sides to it, that story. Could you maybe describe briefly what Café Patriot was and, uh, and why it captured your attention? Café Patriot was established by two people who had gone to fight in the early phase of the war as volunteers in these volunteer battalions. And when they demobilized from that experience and went back to a more, what was at that time, a more peaceful part of the country, they found that they were deeply distrusted by the people in the society who did not want to hire them for jobs or did not really want to be in conversation with them. And so they established this cafe with two purposes. The first purpose was to put themselves and veterans like them back to work. And they phrased this to me as creating an alternative to depression after the war. Because as you can imagine, it's a very difficult process to make that, that um, military-civilian transition successfully. And by creating this cafe, they created an environment in which demobilized fighters could get support. So that was one component. But they also wanted a place where they could challenge, if you will, the the patrons or the 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 non-combatant civilians and help them think more critically and more carefully about the war that was going on at that time very very far away right an entire day's drive and so this was this two-pronged approach and Yuri um, the cafe's uh, main proprietor he and his uh, co-owners of the cafe had brought a lot of paraphernalia back from the war to create and to curate this experience so that when you go into the cafe, it's highly interactive. There's a disabled Kalashnikov you can pick up and point. Bazookas hang from the ceilings. Um, there's, there's bullet casings to run your hands through and a a bulletproof vest that you can try on. They they very much wanted people to have uh, an interactive experience of war as a way of engaging with them. And I think that the chapter is important because it challenges our thinking that societal militarization is a unconscious, seamless insidious process, which is how it tends to be portrayed in the in the feminist international relations literature that's critical of, of war. And I found the I found Yuri um, to really shift my thinking on this topic. And uh, have you engaged with with people I mean, you, 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 you contrast your way of thinking about it with the more purely, I don't know how I would say, negative, um, critical ways in international relations literature to look at militarization, militarism. 
uh, I think it's easy for for anyone to understand where those criticisms would come from. Is that a society which celebrates war is probably a society that would be more inclined for also future war. So when you say that you became more critical of, of that point of view, have you engaged with the people who would represent that point of view? And what, what would they say to you when you discuss this? Or what kind of thoughts emerge? Uh, have you yourself been kind of conflicted of and between these two, like, in some sense, un, uh, you know, valid, understandable points of views? How How, how is your thinking been challenged either externally or internally around that since uh, since you started your work in Ukraine? That's a good question. I have engaged with them, and I think we agree about this fundamental idea that you just mentioned that society should be very reluctant to adopt an ethos in which the way to resolve a conflict or a contradiction is militarily, as opposed to dialogue and negotiation. I have no argument with that philosophical stance that peace is better than war and that nonviolent methods of conflict resolution are far superior to violent ones. So we agree on that fundamental point. And I see my work as more complementary now than corrective to basically make the point that it would there's a lot to gain from looking at how people very consciously craft their world as opposed to assuming that they are influenced by the society around them Right. So I'm I'm very interested in this idea of how people consciously and deliberately and strategically interact with their environment. And perhaps one of the ways that uh it become became most clear to me is that, you know, we know that war is a very gendered practice and that there is such a thing as militarized masculinity. And yet in this cafe, the veterans were even questioning militarized masculinity. You know, the the bottom line of militarized masculinity is that it devalues emotion and it devalues care. And they had found a space in that cafe for valuing their own emotions of caring for other soldiers of caring for their mental well-being, of wanting to attend to issues like post-traumatic depressions and all of the mental health sequelae of war. And so I think that it's an it's an opportunity to think of masculinities in the multiple and militarization in the multiple. Yeah, I think that this is Probably a general dilemma that a lot of people face during times of war is how how do you value non-violent means in the face of an aggressor? Are, are you allowed to destroy the means of your own destruction? And if you are, how much are we willing to celebrate those destroying the means of our destruction? And I think that there's been a lot of change in at least, uh, I can speak from living in Europe, I don't know how much there has been in the US or in other parts of the world, but in Europe, certainly 
just looking at a country like Germany, there's been this huge rethinking of how to kind of how to relate to war. There's so much, so such important resistance, I guess, to celebrate. But then on the other hand, there's also a lot of people who say that they were naive before, that they thought that we can just neglect the aspect of war and be happy, live happily ever, ever after, and we cannot do it anymore. Um, it's been uh, politically a, a large issue, but I, I also notice it in many people's own lives. I think that they don't really know how to like, how should we talk about these, these, these war heroes and these people finding, you know, like, I guess there was a time when it was much more clear than a war hero is a war hero. And then there's been this large shift. I mean, you mentioned in your book that Yuvano Harari, for example, writes about how war used to be treated as, as this kind of heroic thing. Nowadays, it's kind of war is hell has become kind of main way that people relate to war. And that really leaves this big question of, and of yeah, but what about the veterans? What about the, the, the soldiers? How, how do we relate to that? What about, or more practically, what about the military budgets or, or things like that? Did you feel, um, did you notice change in Ukraine when you were in the Western parts? Because if things have been changing from the point of view of say Western Europe, where all of a sudden there is war in our continent, well, in Ukraine, you were working in the eastern parts in Donbas region where there was war there and, and you write about how the people in Lviv, where the Patriot was, that for them is a very distant thing in 2018 or something. And many people also don't really want to think about it. They're not that welcoming to the people who have been fighting in there. Did you have a chance to notice any, any difference or have you kind of had your finger on the pulse of differences in the way that Ukrainians themselves have have uh, in the Western regions, for example, related to the war? Yes. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned uh, Yuval Harari because he talks about war as hell. And I think one of the contributions of the book, Everyday War, is helping us think at a more fine-grained level of analysis about what kind of hell it is. And in the case of Ukraine, I make the argument that it is the kind of hell in which one can no longer call one's mother or father because they're on the opposite political side. And so this goes straight to the heart of the book and the ways in which it profoundly reconfigured relationships, whether those were friendships or uh parent-child, brother-sister, brother-brother. And so I think that that is the real tragedy of the war in, in Ukraine, which is that in addition to this military crisis and a humanitarian crisis, there is a relational crisis in which Families are divided, friendships have, have broken down, and people find it increasingly difficult to speak across those political divides. So you asked about change over time and change uh, across different areas within Ukraine. What I found in the beginning of the hostilities was quite a bit of variability so that in the Western parts of the country, they suspected that the provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk would simply 
secede from Ukraine and go about their lives, right? They would just, it would be, you know, peace would come from uh, these republics uh, becoming part of Russia instead of Ukraine. And as such, they did not perceive the extent of the threat from Russian Federation very accurately. I think that the proprietors of Cafe Patriot did see the threat from Russia much more realistically, which is that Russia was not going to stop with those two republics. And this is really the the fundamental change with the that came with the full-scale invasion in 2022, which is that the country became much more unified around defending the territory. And I think that's a very important development for Ukraine as a country because whereas when I was doing my work, people were quite skeptical of what the government was up to, they have become much more supportive of their government and they have embraced uh, a civic Ukrainian identity that is independent of ethnicity and is organized around a set of values, the value placed on freedom, the value placed on democracy. And I trace uh, quite a bit of this in the book when I talk about shifts in priorities and values. For example, uh, there's a chapter on, well, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, I mentioned Taurus, who, who ended his uh, blissful retirement to drive on mined roads and collect remains unpaid at his own expense using you know equipment that he had brought from home. And I was very interested in better understanding what motivated him, what motivated him to take those risks upon himself. And his explanation had to do with care First and foremost, it was the least he could do, was how he explained it to me. It was what anybody in my position would do, is what, what you do what you can to defend your country. But also more broadly, uh, people described it to me in terms of a shift in their ethics and a shift in their values. The person who was perhaps most... Um, Explicit about that was the humanitarian that I refer to as Carrillo in the book. Uh, he's the one I, I introduce him at the very beginning as, um, you know, driving in his SUV to get supplies in the capital. But then later in the book, by the end of the book, he's using those vans that were bringing human remains out to bring insulin, pediatric insulin specifically, into the Russian-controlled territory on the premise that the children had to be treated as children. And he, he basically explained this idea that, you know, if in the past, under the Soviet Union, human life was dispensable, you could leave those remains in the field because they're soldiers and they're dispensable. Over time, there was a shift in values in Ukraine, 
and I'm probably describing it too starkly, but there was a, a, a real embrace of the value of each and every life. So that was Carrillo's explanation to me. And it was for him, it was quite personal, right? He, he, he talked about his trajectory of valuing his business prospects, valuing the bottom line economically in his uh, daily work, and then shifting into thinking more in terms of the value of other people's survival and the value of those children as children. But there is an interesting tension there, isn't, isn't there? Because on the one hand, if we start from this idea that war is not just a PTSD land, that that's, it, it, it simplifies too much and it only sees the suffering of, 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 of individuals, not all the interesting things that people, like kind of the ways that people find meaning in a difficult situation. And actually, many people find something completely new. They find this like Pasha who finds his neighbors just bringing things to him when he needs them. Um, and, and sometimes this goes even across enemy lines. The, 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 the children are getting insulin on one territory from, from the enemies who are there collecting as volunteers the remains of the soldiers. And you have all of these incredibly kind of brave and caring and, and in many ways noble, beautiful moments that emerge. But on the other hand, like you said earlier, it can also tear the most kind of classic caring institution, which is the family. It can tear families apart. Uh, I remember there was one story in the book of, um, of a young family who's a, was it that their parents and extended family did not want to offer them a place to stay when they had to leave because they were seen as pro-Ukraine and the rest of the family was pro-Russian. And, and so that in a way, Pasha gets help from these strangers around him because they're seen as being part of the same, the same side. On the other hand, there are those who don't even get help from their family anymore because they are seen as being on the wrong side. But it's not even as simple as that because there are these bridges. Yeah, I, I think that you articulate that well, that there's a, a tension between the care and the war. And in the book, I explore how the everyday war produced these ethics of care, which were was you know this moral thinking about human vulnerability, the difficult choices. Do you cook for the internally displaced in the shelter or one's family at home? And these are, of course, consequential choices that reflect people's thinking about what matters most. And it's a question that Paul Ricoeur also raises in his philosophy. He writes about how ethics have most fundamentally to do with how one lives well with others and for others. And so these caring responses to structural violence were an integral part of stitching life back together, but that didn't mean not engaging the war, uh, quite the contrary. Maybe actually, maybe you could tell the story of Svetlana here, and then we can we we can try to <laughs> to find some clarity in this in this uh, messy situation. But Svetlana's dinner table. So Svetlana is a a woman who was very reluctant to leave Donetsk. She had planned her planned to spend her life there. She was reluctant to leave 
in the end, she she had to leave to preserve her life. But she lived through the siege of the Donetsk airport, which was very intense battle that raged for quite a long time, and decided that she was going to intervene. And so she describes how she had friends that, you know, some of them had enlisted to fight on the Ukrainian side. Others had joined uh, Russian forces. And yet they continued during the siege of the Donetsk airport to drink tea at her kitchen table in the evening. The proviso that they would bracket out war and only talk about daily things at the table. And that is what I refer to in the book as, and, and what there's actually quite a wonderful literature on, which is everyday peace. So these conflict calming strategies that people use to reduce conflict in the world around them as part of a process of maintaining a livable world in the hot mess that is military aggression. Were there ever soldiers from both sides at the same time at Svetlana's? That was precisely her point. <laughs> That's quite a remarkable kitchen table. It's remarkable, except the stakes of the fighting were lower at that time. Hmm. And that these two friends had joined those forces for a paycheck. I see, yeah. So they weren't invested ideologically in the way that people are invested today. And they aren't invested in terms of defending the very existence of their country the way they're invested today. So it was a very, very different phase. Well, but then let's return to the to the tension that you already addressed a little bit. But, but the, the big question that I have is what determines whether war divides or unites? Is it as simple as it, it unites one side and divides across those lines? Or is there is, is there more to it than that? You know, you sometimes see this, you know, this illegal trafficking of insulin to the other side. You also had these odd stories where, for example, there was a story I remember of was it Oleg who was captured and imprisoned by the uh, the separatists. He was I think in the pro-government uh, forces, and he was shot and he was kept in jail. And he talks to you about how he's now skyping with the people who ca who captured, right? Not not only as a, oh, we're best buddies now, but it was also kind of practical. You know, they are now controlling the area and I want to go back at some point. They're going to be my neighbors. But there are these, these striking moments when the lines are not nearly as clear, as hostile as we might think. And then there are moments when the lines are just incredibly hostile. There's a woman who who, ha who decides to leave when because she's singing a, a lullaby in Ukrainian, and her friend is like, hey, what are you doing? I thought we are Russian and not pro-Russian and not pro-Ukrainian. They are, they are pro-Ukrainian people who say they don't want to breathe the same air anymore as those Russians and pro-Russians. So sometimes these, the, the divisions become so sharp and so full of hostility. And in the same areas, in the same dynamic, sometimes they become these completely different, so much more almost mundane or heroic. Mundane in the case of, you know, I'm just skyping with my captors. <laughs> heroic in the case of, of, of trafficking insulin across mines. Did you see any, any kind of hint when does it 
go one way? When does it go the other way? Is there any any lessons we can draw from from your experiences and your interviews? Certainly. I would say that Oleg provides an interesting example because you're you're absolutely right. He found himself on the on the so-called wrong side of the conflict, namely the the pro-Ukrainian side when uh, Russian-backed leaders took control and spent you know a month in a basement jail um, after being shot. And I think that the variables that determine how this unfolds have to do with levels of politicization and political consciousness. People who saw themselves as political actors were much more reluctant to reach across political lines and much more ready to accept that some relationships would end, simply end. Whereas people who wanted to remain apolitical were more inclined to bracket out the politics and adopt this selective deafness in which they at least attempt to overlook, set aside the political beliefs of the person across the table. Then religion... And in what way religion? Well, Oleg was interesting because he was devoutly religious and he had come to the conclusion that this realm of justice, for lack of a better term, was above his pay grade, right? It's up to the creator to decide matters of justice and punishment and retribution and all of those complex questions he, as a mere human being, it was simply his position to live his life as, and be as kind as he possibly could with the other human beings in his midst. But then the other, the other variables, so we have religion, we have levels of politicization, and then we have the pure like pragmatism of of everyday life, which is that Oleg wanted to return. And he knew that these political positions were continually evolving. And so it was extremely likely that the people who had shot him would change their own political opinion. And in fact, they did. Yeah, he kept the door open. And if you think about what he gained from Skyping with his former captors, when his house was broken into, they had moved from being his captors to being, you know, the police and the authorities. They were in a wonderful position to re-secure his house, you know, jump the battery on his car, check and make sure the perimeter of his house was secure, all of those wonderful things that were in his in his interest ultimately. That's that's actually quite quite funny. But the politicization is interesting, and I guess it has a little bit of a potentially uh, troubling undertone, which is that we might think that, in a sense, for example, it would be the level of violence. Like the more violence you've experienced, the more difficult it we it would be to breathe the same air. But it wasn't. It was it, uh, he got shot, <laughs> and then he got bailed in the basement. Yes, I'm glad you raised that. I'm so glad you raised that because uh, trauma presents 
a whole additional and extremely important layer here. So if we can add politicization and religious convictions, we can add trauma. And I think it could be helpful to separate uh, an injury from trauma or violence from trauma because not all violence is traumatizing. Like some violence is traumatizing. And in Aleg's case, he was not traumatized by, he was not psychologically traumatized. And why do you think, was he a resilient individual or did he do something right or? Partly he was resilient. Partly it goes back to that philosophy of life of if I die, it is the will of my creator, not the mistake of my captor, right? I accept my fate. That was his philosophy. I accept anything my creator sends my way. And my task is to be the best human that I can be. But trauma, like you, you mentioned the woman who, the, the lines were so sharply drawn with the woman who sang lullaby and then was reprimanded by her friend for singing the lullaby in Ukrainian. And that's a really wonderful example because she had not been physically harmed by the military aggression against her country, but she was profoundly psychologically harmed and, and deeply traumatized by fleeing on multiple occasions, being a single mother who feared for her child's well-being. As a single mother, she was both separated from her parents by leaving the war zone and then the loss of friends. And you, as you can imagine, if you've got a small child, that's especially difficult. And in her case, uh, she also shows us another aspect of this, the relational aspect of this everyday war, because she couldn't speak to her friends, she couldn't speak to her family. And then in her nuclear family, there was this very striking revolt reversal of roles in which her little child became kind of like the parent when she was immobilized by trauma. And then the, the roles reversed back again as they began to process all of the difficult uh, experiences that they had had. And I, I was very moved by her description of how she worked with her, how her daughter worked with her and how she worked with her daughter in this very symbiotic way where whoever was coping better helped the other one. There's another tension that I'm interested in, which is that sometimes it seems that war changes everything. Suddenly nothing looks like it looked before. You packed your bags, you're in a new place, you can't talk with your old best friend because they're on the other side of the political divide, etc. But then on the other hand, there sometimes it's it's almost I mean it's almost hilarious how little things change in the art in the minds of the people. You tell these stories of, for example, grandparents who stay in the conflict zone, call to their children and say, Oh, it'll be great to see my grandchild. We have a great garden where they could play. Oh, by the way, uh, the, the shelling yesterday you know, broke the apple tree a little bit, but the, the, I'm sure the grandchildren would love the garden. 
then then the response of the parents are, wait, what? I mean, you're seriously asking for your grandchildren to come there, telling that the shelling just destroyed the apple tree, but it's a lovely garden for them, nevertheless. I mean, and there you can, it's almost just like it has become so normal that it doesn't, that the, the grandparents don't see this as like, uh, as, as a big deal. Oh, you know, a little bit of shelling. And, and there were many stories like this. And I'm wondering where, did you see, where, where what, uh, we earlier talked about what makes the difference between this very sharp division versus this very porous line of Skyping with your ex-captors. What about this question of when does the war change everything and suddenly everything has changed versus, oh, you know, there was a little bit of shelling yesterday, not a big deal. You know, like it becomes so accustomed to it that it doesn't feel like necessarily such a big deal anymore. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful question. And I think that uh, it's useful to think about what is the everyday and how is the everyday established. And what I found was that there were sort of two ways of coping with war. One of them had to do with normalizing what was going on around people. So the grandparents who simply accepted that some of the branches had been blown off the apple tree, right? Would be a good example of the normalization of violence. And then there was this whole other group of people that was deeply troubled by that normalization, namely the son who said, hey, wait a minute. And this was also the case with many of the humanitarians, social workers, psychologists that I encountered who were very concerned about how the war had changed people's perceptions of risk and raised their tolerance for both risk and violence to the extent that they were no longer experiencing fear or aversion in the face of this very destructive military activity. And I think another good example of that would be, uh, I talk about towards the middle of the book, um, and in the chapter on coping with military violence, I go into some considerable detail about a man who I called Alexei, who had been uh, evacuated from the East. Um, he had been too poor to relocate and survived in his uh, apartment on minimal rations, nearly starving to death because he was only mixing a little bit of semolina flour in warm water to stay alive. And then there was that infectious process that ultimately resulted in the amputation of one of his legs. And I think he's a really good example of the, the normalization of violence because he talks about how when the bombing was going on, he would go out to the balcony and shake his fist at the sky and say that he could really, what was left for him was to pray to die quickly as opposed to experiencing a long period of suffering. And this is the part of the book where I, I go to the discussion of what agency means in a war zone, which is very different than what agency means in a country that's not at war. And Alexei is a really good example of that because as far as he was concerned, 
he was an he was not a victim of war. He was not a recipient of humanitarian aid. He was an agent through and through. And he might not be able to control the timing of his death, but he was controlling the place by staying in his apartment and not evacuating. So he saw himself in quite different terms than an outsider might see him. And I think that that is the really bifocal vision that we need for understanding a country at war. It's like we need this bifocal vision that from a distance, there are things look differently than when you're in the midst of it. And I think that's kind of what I try to do in the, in the book. Also with the cover, you know, the, the cover shows the inside of an apartment and a window, and that window is looking out on an, a landscape. And I, the reason that I think that the cover is important is because I try to show this war from within as opposed to the outside, through the stories of the people who experienced it. And, you know, the, the images flowing across our computer screens um, and our televisions are by now numbingly familiar. A lot of them show the destruction of residential buildings from the outside. And the book shows the destruction of a residential building from the inside. And I'm trying to say, what is this war like if we look at it from the inside out? Experientially, I mean, that's really how I arrived at this kind of common thread that runs through the book, which is that relationships may be reconfigured in the process of war. Some relationships will end whilst others are created. But at the end of the day, relationships remain important because they help determine who survives. Does Alexandra's father survive his, his position as a sniper or not? Her help was instrumental at that. They're consequential for the dignity of the dead, right? Taurus was bringing the remains back to restore the dignity of people who had given their lives for their country and their consequent relationships are consequential for the well-being of the survivors. And so there's an intersectionality of relationships in which people need to recalibrate what is at the top of their priority level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we started with the idea of it would be wrong and too simple to just call this a PTSD land that you decided that this wasn't the only story, at least, that you wanted to tell. But as you've hinted at many times, I mean, there is a lot of trauma. And, and uh, I mean, you're right that you, you, have, you learned about beatings in basement prisons, limbs severed by landmines, roofs blown off of homes, a billboard bluntly declaring, quote, we will not forgive and we will not forget. Um, and so... How did it change if, or how did it shape your view on, on trauma, on the way people cope with these kind of horrible things to, to live there and talk with people about their losses, seeing that there is more to it than just trauma, but that there is a lot of trauma. How did it shape your view about that, that, that big word <laughs> that we have that capsulates or tries to capsulate so much? How did it change your view on trauma? You know, I think that there's a, a rich and very valuable literature on trauma that's really important for 
shaping a good response to, or a helpful response to war. And in the anthropological literature, there's a very important discussion about the extent to which a medical diagnosis provides this very important focus on individual psychology. Very, very valuable. However, if you take a broader perspective, you see that we suffer socially. We suffer as members of a society, as members of groups. And therefore, in addition, it's also very helpful to take a step back from the individual suffering to consider how it is that people suffer together and how it is that they overcome that suffering through their activities and their choices. I guess the other thing that I would say about trauma is that for the people who were internally displaced, there was no automatic equation between losing their home and needing to flee and being traumatized. It was much more complex than that. And so it's important to ask people relevant questions about what they're actually experiencing, because whether or not an experience is traumatizing has many more variables than just simply being displaced. In many ways, the people who could not flee were among the most traumatized because they, they couldn't leave. They were living in you know, what was called an anti-terrorist operation without access to adequate food or, or shelter, or clean water. How was it to come back after? I mean, you, you, you write in the book about how there's a pretty sharp contrast hearing about what your friends are doing back home and then talking about people who've just lost their homes. Uh, how was it to come back uh, to your more comfortable, more safe, I presume, life back in the U.S.? There was definitely uh, an adjustment process. And I would say that the most important chapter in the book in this respect has to do with friendship and the way in which it changed my view of, you know, in, in, the, in the book, I talk about how um, Gadamer writes about friendship as solidarity. And I, to my way of thinking, you know, I, in, in chapter three, I talk a lot about different definitions of friendship and the ways in which my friendships in Ukraine and other parts of, of Eastern Europe have really profoundly enriched my life because they're so deep and abiding. And so I think that's what I, I carry with me is those friendships. And I, that's the, the connecting link, if you will, between before field work and after field work is that those, the friendships are ongoing and the friendships are very strong and abiding. And in fact, I'm, I'm going to, to visit some friends from Crimea in about a month because they're now in the United States. Are all your uh, Ukrainian friends okay? Almost. Almost. Yeah. They're not everybody. Uh, many of my friends have fled to Western Europe. Some have fled to the United States and others didn't make it. 
sorry to hear. Uh, thank you so much for all of your insights into what me personally and probably most of the listeners have been following the story, uh, but we've been following it, as, as you said, from the outside, seeing uh, buildings being bombed, um, having very little contact to what it's like in the inside. So this was a little glimpse with some more general lessons about uh, about war. Before we finish, uh, one final question, which is how has uh, your research, this book in particular, or your research in general, how has it shaped your uh, outlook on our uh, pieces? It's profoundly shaped my outlook. I began the research with a conviction that human behavior is really guided primarily by rational self-interest and that our rational self-interest relies on our autonomy as individuals. And I came away from the research, I completed the research with a much stronger view along the lines of Pasha, that we are fundamentally together in life. And my belief in sort of like the, the, the centrality of rational self-interest was revised by seeing care virtually everywhere I looked and in places that I least expected to find it. People took tremendous risks um, and made enormous sacrifices to provide care because that was what they wanted to do. And that included, of course, caring for me, as I meant, as I alluded to, you know, there's the really profound friendships that took shape. And so I would say that I'm more cognizant of war as not as chaos, but as planned and willed destruction, uh, first and foremost. And then also this idea that care is everywhere and care is really who we are as a species. And no matter what happens, I, I came to really share Pasha's conviction that no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. Dr. Greta Uling, your book is Everyday War. And thank you so much for your wonderful work and your generous time today. Thank you for having me. So that was it. That was the 24th episode of the On Humans podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, then please do consider supporting the show. It can be something as simple as thinking of a friend that might enjoy the episode too, linking it to them, subscribing to the show, giving a nice review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, etc. Or if you do want to support financially, that would be very, very warmly welcomed and appreciated. You can do it now. So via patreon.com. You can just find On Humans Podcast on Patreon or follow the link in the show notes. Anyway, I hope that you decide to tune in next time. And until then, take care.